Amen. We turn now then to our text, John chapter 20, page 1153 in most of the blue ESV Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the account of John. John chapter 20, we'll read verses 1 to 18, and those will be the verses we're looking at. John chapter 20, we begin our reading at verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So far the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. 
Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, the tomb is empty. And as uh, many of us have uh, read the Gospels, and many of us have had the privilege of even being raised in the community of faith, we, many of us, know why the tomb is empty. We know that the tomb is empty as a symbol of, and as a proof of the reality of the risen Savior. But from the very start, the empty tomb by itself was not enough to convince the followers of Jesus. There is, there is a tension at the first discovery of the empty tomb. There will be uncertainty in the first hours. And for many of the followers of Jesus, this uncertainty would continue beyond the first hours. The tomb was empty. And at first, this is more of an urgent mystery than it is anything else. We see in our text that before there was belief, there was doubt. Before there was joy, there was weeping. But the tomb is empty because Jesus is risen. And this is the crucial truth which Mary must believe, which the disciples must believe, which you and I must believe. That's our theme this morning. Believe the crucial truth of the resurrection. And we're going to look at this in in two points. First, a time for running, and that's the first ten verses. And then, a time for weeping, question mark, verses 11 to 18. Well, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week as we read in the start of our text. And uh, just now we'll quickly note that the other Gospels give uh, some other names. There was a group of women who went, some named in one Gospel, some in another. John only names Mary Magdalene. Uh, but uh, even as John is focused on Mary, both here and, and throughout the verses of our text, uh, John knows there were more there. So Mary, when she gives her testimony in verse 2, she uses the word we. Uh, we. Uh, we do not know where they have laid him. And now let's uh, look at that account she gives in verse 2. What is, what is the tension? What is the urgency? What is, what is Mary's thought process? She, she is thinking in terms of a they, an unnamed they, because she does not know who the they is, but she's thinking in terms of a they who have taken the body of the Lord. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. This is, this is the first reaction to the empty tomb. This is the urgent mystery. This is what we might say the first natural explanation that a human mind would go to. She is, uh, again, not naming the day. She's probably thinking something like this. The tomb has empty. Who has disturbed the body of Jesus? Did the Pharisees do this? Was it not enough for them to have him crucified? Must they also disturb his body? Or if not the Pharisees, maybe if it was grave robbers. Uh, that was a disturbing crime. It was common at this time. And so Mary baby thinking, was it grave robbers again? Has this disturbing crime reared its ugly head once more? 
with this urgent mystery, as Mary perceives it, she runs. Not a running for joy, but a running for distress. The, the tomb is empty. It is a reason to run. Mary does not yet understand why it's a reason to run. She runs to the disciples, Peter and John. John who refers to himself as the beloved disciple in, in this gospel instead of referring to himself by name. What do they do with the message? They run. Mary runs. They run. And John, it's, uh, it's such a matter of running, he, he cannot wait up for Peter. Uh, John is likely quite a bit younger than Peter. Uh, he outdistances his older friends. He arrives at the tomb first. As he is there, he looks, but he does not go in. Uh, but then uh, what happens? We have, we, have enough, uh, we have enough material in the gospel to know something of the personality of Peter. Uh, what do we sometimes call him? We sometimes call him bold Peter. And so, uh, again, he's probably a little bit older. It took him a little bit longer to get there. Uh, but what does bold Peter do? As soon as he arrives, he, he bursts into the tomb. He goes into this empty tomb. And what do they see? Well, there is no doubt that the tomb is empty in the most important sense. What is a tomb for? A tomb is for holding a body. So if there's no body, the tomb is empty. But let us note, the tomb is not completely empty. They see the linen grave clothes. And then also uh, in verse 7, they see uh, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head. Well, at this point, brothers and sisters, there's, uh, there's one thing which is important uh, where there's a, there's a cultural barrier before we can understand it. And there's another thing which is, which is more immediately apparent, but we're, we're going to give an illustration from the modern day to, to help us dig into it. Well, let, let's start with, with the cultural barrier to something that's important. And, and for that, let's start by going back to chapter 19, verses 38 to 41. And we'll read those few verses. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38. After these things, after the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So there's the, there's the cultural barrier. We don't, we don't have this burial custom. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. All right, so let's think about this cultural burial, uh, this, this cultural barrier in the burial. The spices were commonly used, this mixture of spices in the burial. That was the common custom. But the common custom was to use one one hundredth of what Nicodemus provided here. There's an ancient uh, record of a, of a prominent figure who was buried with uh, 40 pounds of, of spices. Uh, and so this gift has been, from Nicodemus, has been described as extravagant, expensive, even as kingly. And so, uh, and these spices, they're, they're, 
they're somehow folded in the grave clothes. So you have the, the grave clothes wrapped around the body, and then in the folds of the clothes, you have these spices to, to help. They had a practical purpose, right, to help with the smell. Uh, but now you, you don't have just the, the normal practical amount. You have this extravagant amount. This, this is what grave robbers would go after. They'd go after the grave clothes because of the expensive spices wrapped in the grave clothes. And this grave was the jackpot because there's a hundred times more than you would normally find. So there's a, there's a cultural barrier there, but it is significant that the grave clothes remain. There's also, there's also something which is, which is uh, more readily apparent, but we're, we're still going to give an illustration to, to help us understand it. Uh, when, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, our family home was, uh, was robbed. You know, we were gone. We came home, and uh, it was it was unsettling, right? You come into your home, and there's been people in the family home. There are things that are disturbed. There are things that are rummaged through. You start thinking, what is missing? What are what are we going to find? What's all going on here? It 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 was a it was a disturbance of the peace. Thankfully, uh, not much was taken. You know, it's difficult to catch a thief. We don't know for sure, but we're, we, we can guess that it was uh, a couple of drunk teenagers from a party a couple houses down. Uh, but, but whether a, a robbery happens from uh, experienced thieves or, or drunk teenagers daring each other to open the neighbor's door, uh, in either case, a, a robbery is a disruption. It is a, it is a disturbing thing, and it's a disturbing thing to, to walk into and, and see evidence of. Or let's just say it directly and, and bluntly. I appreciate how Kevin DeYoung once put it. Quote, grave robbers don't stop to fold the laundry. It is not a completely empty tomb. It is an orderly tomb. If Peter and John were thinking this was the work of grave robbers out for gain or Pharisees out for malice, the not completely empty tomb looks nothing like what they would have expected when they started running body is gone. But the grave clothes with all of the expensive spices in its folds are still there. The face cloth is neatly folded up and put aside. This, for John, is enough. Look at verse 8. He saw and believed. The orderly tomb is enough for John. Now, he doesn't yet have the depths of faith. He, he didn't understand it before because he didn't understand the Scriptures. And uh, verse 9, he still does not yet understand how all the Scriptures prophesied 
pointed forward to, anticipated all the work of Christ from his death to his resurrection to his ascension. And so it's a, it's a fledgling faith. But the empty tomb in this orderly fashion is enough for John. Deeper faith and understanding are yet to come. Brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that that is the path of your faith. We begin by believing. We begin by trusting upon God and, and His Word. And then the deeper understanding, it might not be there from the beginning. It probably won't be there from the beginning. But we then slowly come to understand deeper and deeper the depths of the riches, of the wonders of God's love. Indeed, that is the story for every one of God's believer. For all of eternity, what do we do? We come more and more slowly and surely to understand the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. And for all of eternity, we never plunge those depths because there is no end. God is infinite. And the demonstration of His love is, is of infinite value and worth and glory and beauty. He was God. He humbled Himself. He came. He died on a cross. He suffered for sins. And we are all sinners. He rose from the grave. He ascended to His Father. He is, he is our Savior. Well, John, the orderly tomb is enough even as the deeper understanding uh, will come with time. Uh, Mary uh, needed more. And that uh, takes us back to Mary, and it takes us to our second point, a time for weeping. Uh, Mary Magdalene has come back to the tomb. This time she's uh, probably alone, and she is weeping. And uh, then she sees the angels and they ask the question, woman, why are you weeping? Now Mary is still convinced that someone has taken the body. And uh, she gives an answer which parallels what she said to the disciples. It doesn't matter if she's talking to the disciples. It doesn't matter if she's uh, speaking to angels arrayed in white. Uh, Mary has a one-track mind. They, I don't know who they is, have taken the body of my Lord. And then she turns around and she sees a man. She sees Jesus, but she does not know it is Jesus. Now again, Mary has this one-track mind. They have taken the Lord. And so now uh, another possibility, perhaps a possibility she hasn't thought of yet, arises in her mind. Maybe this is the gardener of Joseph of Arimathea and you know, maybe Joseph of Arimathea decided he didn't want to give up his new tomb for the, for the burial of Jesus Christ. Maybe he changed his mind and, and maybe, maybe, you know, Joseph Arimathea is a wealthy man. This is, this is one of his workers, one of his servants. Maybe he knows what Joseph of Arimathea did with it. And so she says, oh, what have you, uh, and she, she looks at the, the gardener and, and she asks him if, if he was involved. Uh, sir, if you, uh, this is in, uh, this is in verse 15. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. We're told in uh, Luke chapter 8 that uh, Mary of Magdalene, along with some other women, uh, were women of some means. That's the language of Luke 8.3. And they provided from their means for Jesus and his disciples. Well, now uh, Mary, this woman of some means, 
she's offering to provide for the burial herself if Joseph of Arimathea has proved unwilling. In other words, Mary's still looking for natural explanations. But there's no second-guessing rich man. There's no malicious Pharisee. There's no thieving grave robbers or anything else. There is only supernatural explanation. This is Jesus. And he says to her, Mary. With this one word, she recognizes him. She replies, Rabboni. And she comes to worship him. Now let's note two things about this meeting and this exchange between Jesus and Mary. And then we'll directly consider what the word from the living Christ means for us. First, let's note that this is a personal greeting. Now, it's not immediately obvious in the English translations, but the spelling of the name Mary in verse 16 is not the same as the spelling for the name Mary in verse 11 and verse 1. Now, John is, uh, there's a number of clues in his gospel that he's writing to, uh, to uh, Greeks, uh, that the Greeks are at least part of, if not the, the main body of his audience. And so he does things like, when he uses the Aramaic word, he translates it. And we see that at the end of verse 16. Right? He uses the exact words of Mary from this meeting. The, the exact words he said was Rabboni. And then he has to translate it because that's a, that's a Hebrew Aramaic word. It means teacher. Now, he usually uses the Greek spelling of the name Mary. But in verse 16, this would have jumped out to all the Greek hearers. He uses the Hebrew spelling. It didn't need a translation because it's close enough. Uh, and so it doesn't say, you know, Miriam, which means Mary. But, but that's what it is. Miriam is the Hebrew form of the word Mary. And this would have jumped out to the first Greek readers of the gospel. And in other words, we have not only the exact word of Mary in her response to Jesus as she recognizes him, we also have the exact personal word from Jesus Christ. He uses Mary's Hebrew name. He uses her personal name, the heart language of Mary. This is how she would have heard her name as she uh, grew up in her home. Miriam. She replies, Rabboni, which means teacher. John has given us the exact words spoken in the heart language of this personal meeting. Surely, Jesus knows his people. We can think back to John 10, verse 3. Jesus is the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Well, second, let us note there is a gentle rebuke from Jesus for Mary, Miriam. 
She comes to cling to Jesus. We see in verse 17, he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. We know from other texts, such as Matthew 28, verse 9, that the female followers of Jesus, especially after his resurrection, they would they would fall down, they would bow down, worship before him, and, and cling to his feet. And so this is that posture of worship which Mary is taking. Now, she's not rebuked for worshiping Jesus, but she does receive a mild rebuke because she has to know that things will not be the same. Okay? Unlike Thomas, who was too quick to assume that Jesus wasn't there at all, and so he needed to be encouraged to, to touch Jesus if he wanted. He never did. Uh, just the invitation was enough. Uh, Mary has, uh, has the opposite problem. She's, she's so excited that Jesus is there that she's ready to cling to his feet, worship him, and resume the day-to-day fellowship that Jesus had with his followers days before. But Jesus needs to give a mild rebuke. I, I, I am risen from the grave, but, but things are, will not be the same. Uh, Jesus will never again be in daily fellowship on earth with his disciples as he was before. He appears here. He appears there. He appears to one here, to two there, to many there. He teaches there. He teaches here. Uh, but he, he does not live in day-to-day fellowship with the disciples anymore. And we have those uh, appearings and, and teachings in all these different places for 40 days, and then there's the and then there's the, the farewell party at the ascension. Um, but there's there's no more day-to-day fellowship. And she needs to hear this mild rebuke. She, she's too quick to grab hold of him. She she's too quick to say everything will be just as it is before. Uh, no, I I I have risen. I have to ascend. I, I will not be here long. And the day-to-day fellowship is 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 over. I'm going to send you my spirit to dwell in your heart instead. Unlike Lazarus who came out of the grave called by the power of another with his grave clothes still on, Jesus came out of the grave of his own power. His grave clothes are folded up never to be used again because Jesus, unlike others who rose from the dead throughout the Old and New Testaments, there are a number of people who rose from the grave, Jesus will not go back to the grave. He is the living God. He is going to ascend into heaven. And so he also gives Mary a command which she dutifully carries out. Go to the disciples and tell them all these things. And she went and she spoke. Mary believed. She obeyed the command of Jesus. She did not believe as quickly as John. She believed more quickly than Thomas. We don't always all believe at the same pace, do we? God may call us at any time, at any point in our lives, And he may break through our doubts and our weaknesses in all kinds of different ways. But John and Mary and Thomas all come to a point of believing, as did so many. The risen Savior cannot be denied. He will have his people. And the whole purpose of the Gospel is that not only John and Mary and Thomas would believe, but so that we would believe. And so, uh, looking back, this is the purpose of the of the 
crucifixion narrative. It's the purpose of the resurrection narrative. It's the main purpose of the whole Gospel of John. And so looking back a few verses before our text, we see in John 19, verse 35, speaking about the crucifixion, He who saw it has borne witness. (coughs) His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. And then looking ahead to a few verses after our text, we see in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you, by believing, you may have life in His name. And so with that, let us go back to verse 15 and come toward our conclusion by considering that vital question of Jesus Christ. We look now at the second question. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking a dead Jesus? The Pharisees with all their resources could never find Him and no one ever will. Dead Jesus does not exist. He is risen. He is the living God. And He did not die again. He rose to ascend to heaven. Are you seeking an affirming Jesus? A so-called Jesus who will greet you with a personal greeting but then never give you any rebuke, softly or firmly, or any call to service? That Jesus, like any other false Jesus in the imagination of man, does not exist. Are you seeking an unsympathetic Jesus? A so-called Jesus who will keep distant while demanding without mercy a perfect worship which you cannot give. That Jesus like any other pharisaical false god, does not exist either. Are you seeking Jesus, my Savior and my Lord, the risen God? Then amen. Come in repentance and faith. Serve in reverence and awe. Love in the personal relationship of peace with Christ who calls you by your personal name. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, Christ's eternal Father, You are the living God. You are the loving God. Draw us by Your mercy 